Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 45, Flaming Mohemian Rhapsody. Quality. Nice, nice. <laughs> Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of Modern History, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go, Where everybody knows your name, dum, 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 and they're always glad you came, dum, dum, dum. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 10, Flaming Moes. And that was first aired on November the 21st, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about Freddie Mercury. The former Queen frontman passed away on November 24th, 1991, three days after Flaming Moes first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Regular listeners might notice a slight departure from the name of this episode, because what we'd usually do is take part of the name of the Simpsons episode and combine it with the historical subject. Trouble is, if we did that this week, we'd end up with Flaming Freddie Mercury, which wasn't very good. So uh, uh, we went for Flaming Mohemian Rhapsody instead, which is a great little pun. Very pleased with that. Very pleased indeed. So it sounds like we'll be talking about music a bit later on. But, of course, we have the important business of what was the UK number one at the time that this aired. Uh, because it wasn't Freddie Mercury or Queen. You can look it up if you want, but I'm not talking about it. Numbers two and three we've also discussed. So at number four, it's Altern 8 with Active 8. Brackets come with me, close brackets. For those at home, I'm putting emphasis on the 8 as it's one of these names that is spelled with a number. So it's Altern-8. Altern-8 are a British EDM act consisting of Mark Archer and Chris Peat. They were formerly known as Nexus 21. The UK rave scene was pretty big at this stage, and they made out well for a few years. Not prodigy well, but well enough by the looks of it, uh, before splitting in 1994. Gotta be honest with you, I don't remember this one at all. I've listened to it, and I can tell the bits I'm meant to remember, but I just don't. This is one of three visits to the top 20 for Alternate, as they'll return there twice in 1992 with Evapor 8 and Hypnotic St 8. I should note that not all the songs had that pun in. Would you believe Active 8 Come With Me hit the top 40 again in 2013? as one of those let's get this song to Christmas number one campaigns that worked great guns for those big anarchists who don't like money at all, Rage Against the Machine, and precisely no one else. Our friends here came in at number 33 on the back of that. Got a fun fact for you as well. In March 2020, Alternate headlined the Bang Face Weekender which sounds like something very different to what it is, at Pontins Southport. This was apparently the last large-scale musical event held in Britain before the COVID-19 lockdown. <laughs> Given the band's stage and promotional garb of chemical warfare suits and face masks, that's very much a case of cometh the hour, cometh the band. And while we're on a popular culture tip, I must pause to mention, 
that on November the 27th, 1991, a mere six days after this episode aired, the World Wrestling Federation presented Survivor Series 1991 at the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, including the Gravest Challenge, in which The Undertaker, with the dastardly help of the nature boy Ric Flair, defeated the immortal Hulk Hogan to win the WWF Championship for the first time, and in one of those brilliant things that you only get in wrestling... Several days later, at the This Tuesday in Texas event from the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, the immortal Hulk Hogan, despite the dastardly hindrance of the nature boy Ric Flair, defeated The Undertaker to win the WWF Championship for the fourth time. And the first of those two events, would you believe, was the first WWF pay-per-view I ever saw, and that was my gateway to becoming the wrestling fan I am today. But don't watch it, it's really not that good. Returning to the episode, finally, the US viewership was a Nielsen of 14.4, coming into approximately 13.26 million homes. 29th for the week, the highest rated Fox show, and second only to the name redacted show in its time slot. The latter finishing 17th with a Nielsen of 15.9. Now, I think it's worth noting that this aired during sweeps. Now, that's a courtly American televisual event where, and I think I've got this right, this was some pretty hurried research, um, Nielsen asks households to submit pen and paper diaries as evidence of what they have watched. The name comes from the 1950s when this method was first used, because Nielsen reps would start collecting the diaries in the East and sweep through to the West. This information is then used to inform scheduling of programs and advertisements. It's an archaic method of measurement and obviously ripe for falsification, but it is still used to this day amongst other methods of measurement. In fact, summer sweeps, generally the least effective one, as viewing in general is lower in the summer, but still observed nonetheless, uh, were scheduled to start on June the 25th, the day after we record this podcast. Ooh, spooky. (laughs) Not really, but... If, like me, you've ever heard that term, which comes up a bit in The Simpsons, actually, and wondered what that was, wonder no more. The production number for this episode was 8F08, and the credited writer is Robert Cohen. He's new, so here we go. Not much to say, actually. He's from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, home of later Simpsons guest star Brett Hitman Hart. And IMDb tells me he's written, directed and contributed to everything from The Ben Stiller Show, Saturday Night Live and The Big Bang Theory. Well, you can't get them all right. To Dodgeball, Anchorman and Tropic Thunder. This was his only Simpsons episode, but he is still working right up to today. The chalkboard gag was underwear should be worn on the inside, which... Several superheroes, I think, would disagree with. Uh, And the couch gag is that thieves are stealing the couch as the family run in. They sit on the couch anyway and are tipped off the couch and the thieves successfully complete said theft. The time it took me to describe that is probably longer than that entire sequence runs. But there we go. So what actually happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to watch Eye on Springfield. I love the Ion Springfield opening titles and music. It's it's just so on point. It's so of its time. It's realistic to local culture shows, um, packed with sight gags. And let's face it, boobs for no apparent reason except to get eyes on the screen. This is where we first see that Springfield's Aztec Theatre is closed for repairs, as it often will be, and see Springfield's oldest man meeting Springfield's fattest man before just showing bikini models for, assumedly, the rest of the show. While this goes on, Bart is trying to hide from Lisa's slumber party, and with good reason. 
A random girl is soon dared to kiss him, and he is then jinxed and subsequently punched by Homer for breaking that law. After Bart apparently seriously injures himself, jumping from a first floor window to avoid a makeover, the target shifts to Maggie. And after seeing his baby apparently cosplaying Madonna, Homer escapes to Moe's. Moe is having a hard time making his bills due to a general upsurge in happiness. Since he's out of beer, he has to resort to cocktails. And Homer shows him a drink he once made to get away from one of Patty and Selma's many slideshows. A flaming Homer. The drink is made from the dregs of many old spirit bottles. We see tequila, schnapps, some little bottles of spirits from airlines, and creme de menthe. But in his haste, he added a dash of Krusty's non-narcotic cough syrup for kids, accidentally inventing purple drank. Surprisingly enough, it tasted bad, though was at least non-blinding. But once Patty's cigarette had ignited it, it tasted fantastic. Mo is sold and asks Homer to whip up a couple. This means he has to go through the lost and found box to get cough syrup. Tom, what else does he find in there? A uh, big knife, troll doll, glass eye. Bam! There we go. Three Paying for attention three. This time. It proves just as tasty this time round, but when another punter asks for the name of the drink, Mo takes the credit and names it a flaming Mo. Cut to assumedly a couple of days later, and the bar is going great guns, all thanks to the flaming Homer. He even hires a familiar-sounding, posh but sassy bartender. Enter Harve Bannister, vice president of Tipsy McStagger's Good Time Drinking and Eating Emporium, which I assume is a bit like TGI Fridays. Not that there's anything wrong with that, by the way. Great cocktails there. He offers a payoff for the rights to the drink, but Mo knows he's got a hit on his hands. Half takes a sample for analysis, but Professor Frink erroneously identifies the secret ingredient as love. Meanwhile, Homer is feeling put out for two reasons. The lack of actual credit and the lack of financial credit for his potentially million dollar idea. As Mo expands, vaguely gentrifies and gets Veterans Day renamed Flaming Moe's Day. When Aerosmith come by to play for free pickled eggs, Homer has to climb through the gent's window to get in. And when Moe literally can't hear his complaints over the sounds of success, it pushes Homer to the edge of sanity. And that's when we get a classic prank call. Bart asks for Hugh Jass this time, but Hugh is actually there. Luckily, he's a good sport about the whole thing. After Homer takes legal advice and tries a new bar, Marge tries to console him by saying that he's making people happy. He's the magical man from Happyland in a gumdrop house on Lollipop Lane. Mo then has a change of heart and decides he'll sell the recipe and split the million dollars with Homer. But having now gone right round the bend, a hallucinating Homer sees and hears only Mo. 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 Mo in a nightmarish sequence filled with mo-heads. This leads to a final showdown at the bar, with Homer screaming phantom-like from the rafters and revealing the secret ingredient, sadly in front of Harv, before falling on Aerosmith. A week later, many copyists have sprung up, and the tavern is once again empty. Homer and Mo are at least reconciled, and Mo prepares his best customer, a flaming Homer. Now, I like this episode... But I don't like it as an episode, I think is the best way to put it. I think it's full of really good little sequences. And I'm going to touch on some of those a bit uh, in the next section. But as a, as an episode, there's not much meat to it, I don't think. What do you reckon, Tom? 
Okay, I, I really like this episode. I, I I think this I think this one's a classic. It hits you with lines over and over again, and yeah, it's it's packed full of memeable stuff, as we will find out a bit later. Excellent. Before then, though, uh, we come to the character debuts and progress section, which, as you remember, was on hiatus last uh, time out because uh, we're running out of debuts at this stage. <laughs> Um, everyone's already been in it. So who who can I spirit up this time? Well, uh, I mean, there's um, uh, well, there's ah, there's there's Tipsy McStagger. Uh, oh no, wait, there is no Tipsy McStagger. He's just a composite of other successful logos. Okay, and uh, right, already getting a bit desperate here. But but let's try Colette, Moe's bartender, who is essentially Diane from Cheers. One little interesting nugget here, an actress called Catherine O'Hara originally recorded Colette's dialogue. Uh, Now, I thought I recognized that name, and I did. It turns out she's done quite a bit of high-profile voice work. For example, the voice of uh, Sally in Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. But she's probably best known as the mum in Home Alone. Oh, okay. Um, for whatever reason, her uh, her reading wasn't favoured, and she was uh, replaced with a regular recurring voice actress, Joanne Harris, uh, who had worked on The Simpsons previously. Um, but that's still not much that I have to talk about. Thank heavens, then, for the presence of Aerosmith as themselves, which gives me an excuse to burble on for a few minutes talking about one of America's most celebrated rock and roll heritage acts. Yes, Aerosmith, whose classic lineup comprises... Stephen Tyler, vocals, Joe Perry, guitar, Brad Whitford, guitar, Tom Hamilton, bass, and Joey Kramer, drums. Debuting in 1970, they plied their heavily blues-influenced rock trade to no little success, eventually shaking the obvious Rolling Stones comparisons and becoming an influential act in their own right. However, factors including well-documented drug and alcohol misuse led to a fallow period in the late 70s and early 80s, during which Perry and Whitford actually left the band for a number of years. They had a reunion tour in 1984, back when that was an unusual thing to do, if you can believe that nowadays, but would not truly heat up again until 1986 collaboration with Run DMC on a new version of Aerosmith's mid-70s single Walk This Way, which worked wonders for both acts, with Run DMC gaining legitimacy from working with rock royalty and Aerosmith gaining cool from working with one of hip-hop's most valued acts. The band then got clean and released two massive hit albums in Permanent Vacation and Pump and held everything together despite making the mistake of touring with Guns N' Roses, who was seemingly solely fueled by drugs and alcohol at that point. The year after this appearance, they released the album Get a Grip, which sold seven million copies in two and a half years, with the videos for the largely critically panned power ballad singles from the album. Those were Cryin', Crazy and Amazing featuring Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler, bringing those two actors to the attention of film studios and the band to the attention of the MTV generation. And they have never not been massive since. In Simpsons terms, they were the first band to make a guest appearance. The writers actually heard they were interested, so they wrote them into this episode. Hank Azaria flew to Boston to record Moe's dialogue with the band, and they requested one change in the script. They were originally offered free beer rather than free pickled eggs, but asked for pretty obvious reasons that that be changed. There are two Aerosmith songs in this episode. Walk This Way, which, and I don't think this is a controversial proclamation, but you never know with music fans. Anyway, which is Aerosmith's signature tune and most recognised work, 
originally released on the 1975 album Toys in the Attic. The other one is Young Lust, the opening track from their 1989 album Pump. Big single off that one was Love in an Elevator, if you're trying to place it. Aerosmith actually recorded a shortened version of that song just for this episode, which was nice. They really didn't need to do that because, you know, the, I'm sure the program makers would have just have edited it. But there we go. Of the appearance, Tyler is quoted as saying, we were elated because it's a you know you've made it when moment. You're this low life rock and roll band, a rock band that's throwing parties for 20,000 people a night. And then you see yourself on television on the biggest cartoon of its time. It was the height of insanity of the cartoon era. For me, the equivalent of when we did Walk This Way with Run DMC during the beginning of that era of rap. We always tried to get in on the ground floor of these things, and we were blown away that we were asked to do it. That's an amazingly humble thing to say when you're when you're Aerosmith, that, that, that you're amazed to be in The Simpsons. That's quite something. Absolutely. I, I would say The Simpsons probably gained more cultural cachet from having Aerosmith guest on them than Aerosmith gained, you know, fans from being on The Simpsons myself. I, I think they've I think they were bigger than The Simpsons at this stage. So, yeah, that, that's an amazing quote. I, I had to include that one when I stumbled across it. Yeah. Um, there is actually one more debut in this episode, at least I think there is. This is the very first time that I can remember the Springfield Tire Fire appearing as it does in the very first scene with Kemp Brockman on Ion Springfield celebrating the 25th anniversary of its ignition. Although this is presumably retconned in season 25, episode three, four regrettings at a funeral. God, I tell you what, the episode titles get awful after about season 20, but this actually isn't a bad episode where it is revealed that Krusty a stocked the tire yard with discarded tires from a failed car launch and B, set light to it with a stray cigar. The fire can be smelled in 46 states and appears in too many episodes to be listed here, so I'll concentrate on the two occasions in which it was temporarily extinguished. Firstly, in Season 10, Episode 20, The Old Man and the Sea Student, it is put out when the Olympic Committee comes to assess Springfield's suitability for the Summer Games. Once it's been rejected due to Bart's racist comedy, the Russian delegate discards a cigarette, which relights it. And in season 24, episode 3, Adventures in Baby Getting, the tyres are bulldozed into a sinkhole. Yet in later episodes, we see it still light in its original location. Boy, I hope someone got fired, Ektekt. I would note that I saw some sources mention that the tyre fire actually debuts in season 1, episode 3, Homer's Odyssey. But that episode is absolute rubbish, so I'm not going back to check. To me, that seems quite early to have introduced this, but the Ion Springfield sequence does revisit old haunts, and given the episode's focus on safety, it is plausible, I'll give it that. If anyone knows, tell me, because this is a rare occasion where I would actually be interested to know. And speaking of knowing, Tom, did you know the sixth person at Aerosmith's table, the one with the big beard who clearly isn't any of the band members, is modelled after John Kolodna, the band's A&R man. I, I didn't know that, but I assumed he would have been a manager or something. Yes, yes. Apparently they requested specifically that he be in the episode. So there we go. <laughs> um, uh, the Flaming Moe song is a parody of Where Everybody Knows Your Name, the theme tune to the extremely famous bar-based sitcom Cheers, which was actually still airing at this point. It ended in 1993. 
And just after the song plays, we see another member of staff at Moe's who is very reminiscent of Woody from the aforementioned series. Plus, Barney gets the welcome usually reserved for Norm. Of course, we know that The Simpsons' biggest link to the series is Kelsey Grammer as Sideshow Bob. But that character is safely in prison and will never be a threat to the family again. Or will he? Krusty punching a photographer outside the bar is apparently a reference to an incident with Sean Penn who did a very short stint in prison for a similar act. Icelandic pop star Björk would batter a journo as well, but I believe that was a couple of years after that. And finally, the Happy Sailor Tattoo Parlour, where in the Ion Springfield opening titles, Kent is seen getting a huge tattoo of a Chinese-style dragon on his back, has its interior shown for the first time since Season 1, Episode 1, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, although Mervyn Monroe is sadly not the artist doing that particular piece. Also spied for what I think is the first time since the premiere, Springfield Downs Dog Track, although we're not being asked to think of them as little horses just yet. Tom, you've promised me a motherload of memeable moments, so without further ado, the floor is yours. Okay, so I've gone for five, because there are loads of great lines in this episode, but uh, as for real memeable stuff, I've gone for... Springfield's oldest man meets Springfield's fattest man and Homer replying with, he's not so fat, which which crops up whenever um, <laughs> whenever anything fat appears in the Simpsons group. Mayor Quimby proclaiming that today is Flaming Moe's Day and his advisor says, sir, this is already Veterans Day. And Quimby goes, it can be two things. <laughs> so that's that's whenever you've got two things appearing at the same time. It can be two things. Huge ass, we've already talked about. Um, I'm huge ass. Also, we've already mentioned, uh, look at me, I'm making people happy. I'm the magical man from Happy Land in a gumdrop house on Lollipop Lake. <laughs> which is fun, fun to do. Uh, and finally, you've got Joey, the drummer, backstage with Mrs. Crabapple. He's saying, I really need my drumsticks. And she's saying, come and get them, bite so there you go there's your memeable moments fantastic certainly the uh, the gumdrop lane one comes up um, rather a lot uh, particularly when talking about the uh, british government at the moment um but before we're forced to talk about the british government let's talk about um something a lot sunnier than that let's talk about freddie mercury indeed right so freddie mercury former lead singer of the band queen he was given the name Farouk Bolsara at birth. Uh, you know, we've, we've already talked about someone who called themselves Bolsara, but we won't go over that now. So he died on November the 24th, 1991 from complications of AIDS, three days after Flaming Moe's first aired. And there's a lot to unpack about Freddie Mercury's life. But one thing I won't get too close to is their music, because I've never been a big Queen fan. Oh, I am partial to a bit of Bohemian Rhapsody. However, I've had to remove innuendo from my Retrospectica's playlist because I really don't like it. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to Freddie Mercury's life story. He was born on September the 5th, 1946, in a pretty unusual place, that being Zanzibar, which at the time was a British protectorate. Zanzibar was a small region in East Africa that consisted of a handful of islands and the coastline that ran next to them. It's now part of Tanzania. His parents were Parsis, which is an ethnic group that people probably haven't heard much about. So Parsis originated from what was Persia, which is now Iran, of course. 
And during the Muslim conquest of Persia from about 640 AD, long time ago, large numbers of Parsis were driven out and they made a new home in the Gujarat region of India. And their religion is Zoroastrianism, which is a dualistic faith and one of the oldest continually practiced religions in the world. Mercury's father worked as a cashier in the British colonial office. As Zanzibar was a British protectorate, Mercury was a British subject. He didn't grow up in Zanzibar, however. He was sent to St. Peter's School, a boarding school near Bombay, or Mumbai as it's now called. While there, he learned to play the piano and formed a band called the Hectics. At the age of 16, he moved back to Zanzibar to be with his parents. The next year, his family fled Zanzibar to escape the Zanzibar Revolution. And this gives me an excuse to talk about a less-known 20th century revolution, so here we go. Now, for a small group of islands on the east coast of Africa, the history of Zanzibar is really weird. During the Age of Exploration, Portugal took control of Zanzibar in 1499. Nearly 200 years later, they were defeated in battle by the Sultanate of Amman, which took control of the islands. Now, Amman was a kingdom on the south coast of the Arabian Peninsula, and of course the country of Amman still exists. The Amanis established an economy that was centred around spice plantations and enslaving the local population. The ruling Arab elites encouraged traders from the Indian subcontinent to settle there to manage businesses. So a race-based class system quickly emerged with Arabs being the ruling elite, the Indians being the business-owning middle class, and finally the Africans who were the slaves, which is nice. In the late 19th century, control of East Africa was carved up between the UK and Imperial Germany, with the British having what would go on to be Kenya and the Germans having the future Tanzania. In 1890, the British and the Germans signed the Heligoland Zanzibar Treaty that made Zanzibar a British protectorate, much to the chagrin of the ruling Arab sultans. The Sultan Hamad bin Fulwaini died in 1896, which brought on a bit of a succession crisis. His cousin, Khalid bin Bargash, seized power. This was not what the British wanted, and they gave him an ultimatum to leave the palace in Stonetown, capital of Zanzibar. He refused and assembled an army 2,800 strong. Nevertheless, the British declared war and ousted Bargash in 38 minutes, making it the shortest war in recorded history. They then went and installed Hamoud bin Mohammed, who they believed would be much more pliable. British rule lasted until 1963, when the British granted independence to the Sultanate, which was nice of them. Before then, elections were held, with the main African party getting slightly fewer seats in Parliament than the main Arab party, despite getting substantially more votes, thanks to a fair bit of gerrymandering and boat rigging. This led to riots where dozens of people were killed. A Ugandan by the name of John Akello moved to Zanzibar in 1959 and started working with the Afro-Shirazi party, the main African political party in Zanzibar. At 3am on the morning of January 12, 1964, Akello led several hundred poorly armed insurgents in an attack on Zanzibar's main police station. They succeeded in taking the police station through force of numbers and they kitted themselves out at the local armory. As Okello's forces took control, gangs of Africans went around killing, raping and mutilating whatever Arabs and Indians they could find. It's estimated that up to 20,000 people died in the revolution. Funnily enough, Freddie Mercury's family, being of South Asian descent themselves, didn't fancy hanging out there anymore, and they swapped Zanzibar for the sunny climes of Feltham, Middlesex. Mercury studied art and graphic design at Ealing College, graduating in 1969. He would later use his skills to design Queen's iconic album covers. 
He spent the early part of the 70s in and out of various bands, including one called Wreckage, who were based right here in Liverpool. He even lived in a room above the Dovedale Towers pub for a brief period. Now, the Dovey is just off Penny Lane. I've watched football there a few times. But I guess Penny Lane is more concerned with the Beatles than it is Queen. Eventually, he teamed up with drummer Roger Taylor, bass player John Deacon, and lead guitarist Brian May, and they formed Queen in 1971. It was also at this time when he legally changed his name from Balsara to Mercury. Mercury designed the original Queen Crest, which featured all the star signs of the band. This was the obvious inspiration for Racine and Spinal Tap, where the band are all drawn dressed as their zodiac signs, but that's for another time. As for Brian May, he was studying for a PhD in astrophysics at the same time as playing with Queen. When Queen had international success, he put his studies on hiatus, because you can do that if you're an international rock star, apparently. May finally completed his PhD in 2007. He currently campaigns to protect badgers while looking like a badger. Queen arguably reached their artistic zenith in the 70s, releasing the album A Night at the Opera and the single Bohemian Rhapsody in 1975. In 1981, they became arguably the first rock band to play in South America, playing to an audience of 300,000 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, just a year before the Falklands War. What happened there, eh? In 1982, Queen released the album Hot Space, which was a major departure from their previous works. In 2004, Q Magazine put the album in their list 15 times when great rock acts lost the plot. Their shows in the US would be the last shows they did in the States, with Freddie Mercury as their frontman, and they didn't do any live shows at all in 1983. In 1984, they had a return to form with the release of The Works, which featured the hit single I Want to Break Free. The video for it famously featured Mercury cross-dressing in a parody of the British soap opera Coronation Street. Us Brits loved it, but it didn't go well down at all in America, and it was banned by MTV. October 1984 saw Queen play Sun City. Now, I know I've already gone over this in episode 6, Moaning Mandela, but it's worth going over again. During the 80s, South Africa was under the apartheid regime. White privilege was enshrined in law, and everyone else was a second-class citizen. The regime was met with boycotts and international sanctions, including cultural boycotts that meant that bands were heavily discouraged from playing there. In fact, in the Simpsons episode Flaming Moe's, you can see that Lisa has an End Apartheid Now poster on her door. This is a bit of a first for this show, as it's the first time I've mentioned something in the Simpsons episode that directly relates to the history bit. Now, Party Central in white South Africa was a place called Sun City. Now, Sun City was built by a property developer called Sol Kersner, who took advantage of the Bantu Stan system. The idea was that the ruling National Party would create areas in South Africa designated for black people. These regions were known as Bantu Stans, and they nominally had a certain degree of autonomy. Of course, the real reason for them was nefarious. The National Party classed people who lived there as citizens of the Bantu Stans and not citizens of South Africa, thereby stripping them of their citizenship rights. In terms of entertainment, white South Africa was rather Protestant and socially conservative. But because Sun City was in the Bantu Stan of Boffert's Fatswana, Kernzer was able to persuade the local lawmakers to allow things like gambling and topless dance shows, making Sun City the number one tourist destination for white South Africans. Of course, lots of bands defied the cultural boycott to play Sun City, but Queen drew the most attention mainly due to how many shows they played. They were penciled in to perform 12 shows there in 1984, but this was reduced to nine as Freddie Mercury's voice struggled under the workload because they were going to do them back-to-back, more or less. 
even so, each show was a sellout. Make your own jokes there. As a result of their antics, Queen were fined by the British Musicians Union and placed on the UN's blacklisted artists list. Less than 12 months after Sun City, Queen played Live Aid, arguably their most famous performance. Queen were heralded as the best act of the whole show, with Mercury's a cappella becoming known as the note heard round the world. It was very much an instant all is forgiven as well after that. it's uh, their, their, their cultural stock went from wouldn't touch them with a barge pole to best band on the planet. Yeah, yeah. 1986 saw Queen's final shows with Freddie Mercury as the lead singer. They played two sold-out shows at Wembley as part of the Magic Tour. They wanted to book Wembley for a third night, but it was unavailable, so they played Nebworth Park instead. The show sold out within two hours, and it would be Freddie Mercury's last performance. In 1987, Mercury was diagnosed with AIDS, and his health visibly waned. He became increasingly gaunt and unable to perform live. However, the band denied his diagnosis, flat out lying about it at times. He was hounded mercilessly by the British tabloid press, who revealed that some of Mercury's lovers were HIV positive. Despite his condition, Mercury continued to record when his health allowed it. In 1989, Queen released the album The Miracle, which included the single I Want It All. And, you know, the chorus goes, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. And ironically enough, with black South Africans demanding their rights, the song became an anti-apartheid anthem. (laughs) Which is so weird. It's like five years between them playing Sun City and releasing an anti-apartheid album. It's, it's, It's like, what? Anyway. So the last video Mercury recorded was These Are the Days of Our Lives, which was shot in black and white to try and mask the effects of his ill health. The song was written by Roger Taylor, and it's about looking back on his time with his children. But of course, as it was the last song Freddie Mercury recorded, it took on a whole new poignancy, with I Still Love You being Freddie Mercury's last words to the camera. On the 23rd of November, Mercury put out the following statement. Following the enormous conjecture in the press over the last two weeks, I wish to confirm that I have been tested HIV positive and have AIDS. I felt it correct to keep this information private to date to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has come now for my friends and fans around the world to know know the truth, and I hope that everyone will join with me, my doctors and all those worldwide, in the fight against this terrible disease. My privacy has always been very special to me, and I am famous for my lack of interviews. Please understand this policy will continue. And on the 24th of November, the day after putting out his statement, Freddie Mercury passed away, succumbing to bronchial pneumonia, a complication that arose from having AIDS. Of course, his death was headlined news, and hundreds of fans went to his house to pay their respects, including comedian Matt Lucas, who has talked about the experience candidly in documentaries. Mercury's funeral was conducted on the 27th of November, according to Zoroastrian tradition. As a tribute, Queen re-released Bohemian Rhapsody as a double A-side with These Were the Days of Our Lives and donated the profits to the Terence Higgins Trust. In the USA, sales of Queen records surged after Freddie Mercury's death, something the Simpsons addressed in the episode Round Springfield. Comic book guy, who I can't be bothered to remember his real name. It's Jeff Albertson. Jeff Albertson, there you go. Jeff Albertson has a copy of Bleeding Gums Murphy's album on sale for $250. When Lisa tells him that she needs it to pay tribute to Bleeding Gums, he responds by immediately doubling the price. So why did the band try and keep Freddie Mercury's illness a secret? Well, Mercury was a very private person for a start, 
and didn't want people prying into his private life. Perfectly understandable. Also, British tabloids at the time were notoriously homophobic. In those days, the common perception of HIV AIDS was it was a disease that only affected the gay community and or drug addicts, as the virus could be passed around via contaminated needles. The attitude was brilliantly parodied in an episode of Brass Eye, where Chris Morris informs the audience that he supports people with good AIDS, i.e. people who have caught it for a blood transfusion. He doesn't support people with bad AIDS. So the British tabloids saw homosexuality as basically evil. In 1986, The Sun discovered that a teacher's resource library in Islington held a copy of a children's book called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin about a young girl and her two gay dads. The paper brand of the book Vile, Perverted, and a Direct Threat to the Children of Britain, which is obviously where won't somebody please think of the children comes from, that sort of moral panic thing. It, it should go without saying, but since since I haven't got overtly political yet in this uh in this episode, uh, that as a Liverpool-based podcast, Retrospecticus absolutely supports the blocking out of the sun. Indeed. So, in 1987, the Thatcher government introduced Section 28, a piece of legislation that made it illegal to promote homosexuality in schools. Despite homosexuality being decriminalised nearly 20 years beforehand, the late 80s were not a good time to be gay in the UK. Now, since Mercury's death... Queen have continued in some form or another and have been involved in a few unsavoury activities, notably collaborating with Ben Elton for the We Will Rock You musical, and Brian May playing God Save the Queen on his guitar on top of Buckingham Palace to mark the Queen's Golden Jubilee. Bootlicker. Terrible business, that. Yep. But as for Freddie Mercury's legacy, it is well assured. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001, and there are statues and plaques honouring him all over the place, including a three-metre-high statue on the banks of Lake Geneva, which has become a place of pilgrimage for his fans. He's also in the Rainbow Honour Walk, a walk of fame in the Castro neighbourhood of San Francisco. It's full of what? Mercury also has something in common with Emperor Hirohito of Japan, and that he has more than one species of life form named after him. The genus of frog Mercurana, which was discovered in Kerala, not that far from where Mercury spent his childhood, was named after him. There's also a species of Brazilian damselfly called Heteragrion Freddie Mercurii, which was named in tribute to him. In fact, the researchers who discovered it also discovered three other species of the same genus, and they named them after the other members of Queen. So there are also damselflies called Heteragrion Brian Mayi, Heteragrion Roger Tayleri, and Heteragrion John Deaconi. I, t- I can understand. I can understand the others, but but why would you why would you name anything after John Deacon? He is the most anonymous rock performer there there has ever been. Yeah, but what annoys me is that it's a damselfly and it's Brian May. It should be a mayfly. Should be reserving that name for for mayflies. The Brian a- Mayfly. That would work. A- absolutely. There's just no vision, is there? No no yeah. vision. Absolutely. And with that weird little bit of taxonomy, I think I'll leave it there. So there we are, the life and times of Freddie Mercury. Fantastic. Um, I do not have to resort to the curling episode this time to find you some Queen references in The Simpsons. Um, as at least three Queen songs, as in the actual songs, their versions of the songs, are featured in at least three episodes. 
So these are the ones that I, I can bring to mind relatively easily. We have uh, Homer singing We Are the Champions after catching General Sherman in Season 2, Episode 20, War of the Simpsons. And again, whilst wrecking the town with other Isotopes fans in Season 10, Episode 11, Wild Barts Can't Be Broken. An episode in which they also sing We Will Rock You, which Lenny and Carl will sing again in Season 18, Episode 3, Please Homer, don't hammer them. God, those titles. But I, I assure you that's actually quite a good episode. And You're My Best Friend is played over the ending credits of Season 14, Episode 22, Mo Baby Blues. But I've also got a couple of deeper cuts for you. Um, well, actually, this first one is probably the one that everyone thought of first, which is Season 4, Episode 16, Duffless, featuring the song It Was a Very Good Beer. In which, if you remember Homer saying, when I was 17, I drank some very good beer. I drank some very good beer I purchased with a fake ID. My name was Brian McGee. I stayed up listening to Queen when I was 17. Which I, I think that's better than the original myself. But Yes. But there we go. And finally, and apparently, I have to say that because it's one of the very few episodes I now haven't seen after sitting through every episode on Disney Plus in the last six weeks. Um, in the couch gag for season 31, oh, just tantalizingly out of my reach, episode three, The Fat Blue Line, there's a homage to Queen's Live Aid performance uh, with Homer as Freddie Mercury, Lisa as John Deacon, Marge as Brian May, Bart as Roger Taylor and Maggie as the producer, because we all remember that that key member of Queen, the producer. Um, I'm going to look that up afterwards just to make sure. But um, I, I, yeah, I, I can see that working as as previous things of that type have. So there we go. Plenty of Queen in The Simpsons. Excellent. And with that, it's time for the hammer to fall. Don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. Remember that will have Altern 8 on rather than any of the fantastic Queen songs that we've just discussed, unfortunately. <laughs> but stick around for next time because there's a banger coming down the pipe. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye. When the weight of a world has got you down and you want to end your life, bills to pay, a dead-end job, and problems with a wife, but don't throw in the towel, because there's a place right down the block where you can drink your misery away. At Flaming Mo's, where liquor in a mug can warm you like a hug, and happiness is just a flaming mo away. Happiness is just a flaming mo away. Yeah, wanted to get me that. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Excellent. There you go. Little, little Easter egg for people. <laughs>